Uh, we're going to turn it over quickly uh, to Olson uh, and myself, Lucinda, uh, you share her pronouns, and we're going to do a quick land acknowledgement first, because you kind of shouldn't be doing this work if you're not willing to understand what a land acknowledgement is and what it really should be. Uh, so with that in mind, I don't know. If Could we put the PowerPoint? Would that be a good idea? Uh, yes, sorry, Charlotte, do you think that you could run the PowerPoint again? Is that just-, just um, I, I can no longer something. share my screen. I'm not a host anymore. I, I redid that. Um, and anyone else, if someone else wants to do that, I'd be co-host. Okay. Um, so in the interim, lovely. I'm just gonna give a quick introduction here. Um, I'll do my intro later, but for now. Um, Olson Crow, he, him, is a two-spirit Mohawk organizer and crown ward. Olson is the previous VP Equity of the Ryerson Students' Union, Ryerson Indigenous Students' Association, and currently sits as the 2S and trans rep for the Canadian Federation of Students' National Executive. Uh, Olson brings and uses, sorry, their experiences as both a crown ward and as an indigenous person to bring decolonial practices to their organizing. When Olson isn't tweeting, reconciliation is dead, he likes to binge Netflix. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, folks. Um, yeah, so like Lucinda was saying, uh, we're just going to kind of start off today and start off today's symposium with just a little bit of a conversation around land acknowledgements, uh, a land acknowledgement itself, and just kind of unpacking what we've maybe heard about land acknowledgements, what we think of when we see land acknowledgements, and how to do an effective uh, land acknowledgement. Uh, so as Lucinda was mentioning, I am a Mohawk person. Mohawk is an Indigenous identity, uh, and Toronto is a part of that. So I'm going to get into a little bit of a land acknowledgement just to start us off. Uh, so Toronto is in the Dish with One Spoon territory. Uh, the Dish with One Spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent Indigenous nations have been welcomed into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. Um, you folks will mention that when I was doing that land acknowledgement, I talked about specifically the Dish with One Spoon. Uh, oftentimes we hear this in land acknowledgements, but what the dish with one spoon means was recognizing that Toronto, uh, as we know it, was a very uh, area that was rich in resources. Uh, so a lot of different nations kind of settled in this area. Uh, and I talk about pre-colonial settlement, not colonial settlement, um, and shared the land and the resources that it offered. So that's where we get the idea of the bowl. The bowl is physically that representation of the land and the rich resources in which it offers. Uh, the reason it's with a spoon is to represent all of those nations coming together peacefully. Uh, so no forks and no knives are at that table or at that bowl because it was meant to be a peaceful, uh, neutral ground, uh, free of any type of conflict between nations or tribes. So that's where that dish with one spoon part comes from. Uh, when I'm doing a land acknowledgement, something that I like to include uh, for myself personally is to center other racialized identities that I wouldn't consider necessarily to be settlers uh, on this land. So I think for me, that looks like other uh, nations in which have been colonized and now have to come to Canada because it's their only option. So when I talk about that, I talk about uh, Tamils, I talk about Palestinians, I talk about uh, Black folks who were forced here uh, by various slave trades because Canada, as we know it, had slavery too. Um, and to kind of unpack some of those different things. And that's what I personally like to include. Uh, Lucinda. 
thank you. Remembering to unmute myself. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I think um, Olson and I originally connected for a version of this land re-acknowledgement as it came to be called uh, for an earlier student summit uh, for emerging student activists and activism in response to some of the attacks on post-secondary autonomy and structure and well-being, I guess, uh, that happened in the winter of 2019. Um, and I think it was around that time too that this article, which you can see in this slide, um, came about, uh, I believe also is, is either quoted in that specific article or yeah, there you go, no big deal. Um, but, but truly there is an increasing amount of controversy and it was interesting at that time, about a year and a half, you know, starting around two years before, um, people started saying more and more, right? Like these land acknowledgements don't do what they're supposed to do for a lot of people. Uh, and they don't necessarily deepen anyone's commitment to let alone like giving back land, like even just unlearning some really basic things, the terminology that's shared uh, and that isn't broadly, like more broadly contextualized in uh, these set land acknowledgements for U of T, Ryerson and similar institutions. Um, you know, the fact that we don't get richer context, the fact that we don't understand the importance of some of these things, and the fact that we also don't reference the ongoing dispossession of indigenous peoples uh, is, is intentional, right? Uh, and, and problematic. So I think for me, uh, something that I love to mention is maybe my relationship uh, when, when we're opening spaces and when we share land acknowledgements and it's sort of a bigger one, especially, right? Um, acknowledging my relationship as a settler, um, as a second generation immigrant, um, as someone who's benefited from class privilege in particular, and I think has benefited from the ability of someone like my, my mother who taught tirelessly to be able to provide for herself and for her family after immigrating here. Um, you know, she, at the end of the day, still was able to start building intergenerational wealth and stability for someone like myself and, and, and my, my older sibling as a result of colonial laws uh, and a colonial legal system that allows for her to profit off of land transactions as a, as a real estate lawyer, right? Uh, who especially caters to um, upper middle class, middle class uh, members of the Chinese diaspora. Um, so there are things that I don't have. I mean, a better example can be given later if, if there's time, but for now, um, Olson and I were thinking that we could do maybe like a two, three minute reflection uh, and let folks consider for themselves a little bit about, you know, what does it mean for me, for me, for you, uh, to live on this land, uh, to be using it, to maybe to sometimes be appropriating to be continuing to be healing of it, what your obligations may be as allies, if not co-conspirators. Um, accomplices, uh, maybe in, in the fight for giving us opportunity. So, uh, yeah, I guess with that in mind, do folks feel okay with taking about two, three minutes to just sort of reflect and, and then circle back? I'm gonna hope these are thumbs, and I can't see myself, so I almost, I'm also gonna hope I don't look silly. Okay, let's just do that for two minutes. Thanks, folks. Take the two minutes to just kind of reflect on, like Lucinda was saying, what your relation is to the land. And then once we know, and once I get to hear a little bit about what you folks know and what you folks are thinking, uh, after that, we'll use that as an opportunity and a speaking point to go into a little bit more in depth about that article. And also just land acknowledgements in general, the way we talk about land acknowledgements and leftist movements, um, and some of those other various things that I'm excited to pick all of your brains about.
one more minute maybe for reflection time. Let's come back now if that's cool with folks. Uh, so if anyone wants to go first, uh, just again sharing a little bit about how you think you would include your relationship to the land and a land acknowledgement or just your relationship to the land in general and what that looks like for you. We're sharing, like we're, we're sharing our kind of ideas. Um, well, I, I can go first and no pressure to anyone else. Um, my relationship to this land is that my family has been here for a couple generations now from Ireland. Um, and I think growing up, you like don't realize you are a seller, you know? So that's really only been something that, and it's unfortunate, right? But when you are, especially like, if you are just soaking up your white privilege, you really like aren't, like white spaces don't encourage unlearning, right? So that's really only been something that I've realized over the past, like maybe five years, um, like being a settler on this land, what it means. And it's still like a constant process of like unlearning, but also, gratitude and like that I don't know like how do you navigate that space and also kind of dealing with like reparations and like the obligation that we have as white people um and I guess non-indigenous people to support and make reparations for what we and our ancestors have done you know yeah for sure I think that's really important and that's a and oftentimes an answer that I hear. Um, and I think that oftentimes, and I'm not saying in any way you are doing this, this is just a side anecdote. And I think a lot of times when we talk about colonization, especially the colonization of what we know to be Canada, uh, we oftentimes have a habit of thinking that it's something that is like way off, something that happened a hundred years ago. It happened when our grandparents were alive uh, or it happened so like, you know, you don't get what I'm saying. And I think that's something that's really important when we're doing land acknowledgements and land re-acknowledgements, like Lucinda was saying, uh, is the idea that colonization is not something that we're just recognizing in a land acknowledgement as something that's past tense, but land theft is very much ongoing and still happening. Uh, I'm not sure if you folks have looked at the news uh, at all in the past few weeks. I'm not sure if you're anything like me and just sit there doom scrolling um, a lot of these days where we have so much free time. Um, but the things that are happening with the Haldeman Trail and the Haldeman Proclamation and 1492 Landback Lane, uh, where we're seeing right now the Canadian government uh, trying to essentially take land again that is not theirs and that has legally been proven to not be theirs. Uh, and we see the Mohawks. Um, I'd love to always shut up the Mohawks as a Mohawk myself. I personally like to think that we uh, fuck shit up the most. My apologies for swearing. Um, but as we're seeing right now, Mohawks taking over high power machinery from construction sites. Uh, blocking the roads, stopping the trains. When we saw the things happening with Wet'suwet'en, uh, again, that is very current and ongoing colonization. Even if we want to break down colonial practices to something that we hear more about, like residential schooling, for example, uh, we see that there are still basically modern day residential schools when we look at the privatized child welfare system. Uh, and I'm not sure if you folks know, but there's actually more Indigenous youth in care today than there ever has been in Canadian history. There are more Indigenous youth in government care today than there were at the height of the 60s scoop. 
there are more Indigenous youth in care today than there was at the height of the residential schooling system. Uh, so when we talk about some of these issues of colonization, uh, whether it be in our land acknowledgements or with our family or with our friends or whatever that may be, uh, recognizing that it's not necessarily something that's always a past issue, but still very much ongoing. Uh, so thank you for that contribution, for sure. Does anyone else want to share what they were thinking? Sam might have a hand. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, I don't know how, how am I supposed to lower my hand? I'll figure that out later. But anyway, um, I wanted to say that I really related to um, what Lucinda said earlier, especially relating to like the second generation immigrant experience. For me, my grandparents immigrated here and my parents were born in Canada and I was born in Canada. And for us, it was like, really important and um like my grandparents kind of instilled in my parents and then they instilled in me that almost like assimilating into the body politic and the normal culture and acting white was going to be the way or acting canadian quote unquote which is essentially synonymous with acting white was going to be something that would allow you to get ahead and i think that's something that um a lot of Asian Americans and um, Asian Canadians have been told, and that's directly at the expense of Indigenous peoples, and it just goes to show how we benefit from colonialism. Um, but I also reflect on how we wouldn't, my family wouldn't, and a lot of other Asian Americans wouldn't even, oh, just, what just happened? Okay, my computer just died. Sorry about that. Can you still hear me? Okay, perfect. Um, uh, yeah, so I was saying uh, it, we also wouldn't be in Canada had it not been for the effects of colonialism in our home countries as well. Like I have um, uh, some great aunts and uncles who were uh, like they were threatened to be jailed in China because of the views that they express. Um, a lot of them were academics and the things that they were teaching and talking about in their academic spaces were not necessarily things that the government wanted to be spread. Um, so I just kind of think about, you know, there's with the cultural revolution and everything, there's, there, there's seems it's like there's the effects of colonialism are worldwide, but at the same time, like escaping those, um, we ended up in a position where we benefit from colonialism in another country um, to the detriment of the indigenous people there. And to me, it's just a lot to think about and a lot to process, um, trying to come to terms with it. And I mean, I've taken some courses uh, in indigenous studies to try to like learn more about what I can do in the position of privilege that I hold um, as a settler in Canada, um, but also to think on a global perspective as well of uh, what we're doing to support Indigenous peoples all around the world globally. So yeah, that's that's kind of just my my thought process right now. I'm still, you know, trying to digest this as it's coming in, and it definitely takes a lot of uh, reflection time to think about like what this means to me and how we can put this into action. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, listen to you both. Uh, are you sure? Is that okay? 
Um, yeah, because I, I think uh, ta tagging on to that tag on, um, I, I personally am curious to see what happens as, you know, as a function of particular migration constraints, pathways, just what it takes to be a professional class migrant in Canada. Uh, and, and generally then uh, certain privileges that come with being a member of like the Chinese Canadian diaspora, for example, or Korean uh, Canadian diaspora, um, which is so dissimilar from uh, what migration looks like for even Southeast Asians, South Asians, right? Like even just talking about the complexities there and, and these hierarchies that are created by state violence, state structures, uh, is really important for us to talk about as student mental health advocates. I would personally say one of the ways in which um, that connection manifests, right, is like, you know, look at what we are even insecure about. I mean, like, I think a lot of migrants learn this lesson of in order to love your parents, you have to attain a certain level of stability and success. Uh, in order to, you know, be a good child, to be a good, you know, this X person. Um, and, and it becomes a part of this, like, conditional love um, that we share and that we expect. And I think, like, that in itself, I mean, Overall, I just think that more immigrants in particular, and I've been trying to, I guess, live this a bit more, could be thinking about what causal relationships exist in our lives. It's not I happen to go to a private school or to a prestigious university and indigenous people just happen to not disproportionately be present in those powerful institutions. I go here because they don't go here. I get to go here and accumulate wealth because the intergenerational ramifications of dispossession and genuine suicide were what first formed the basis of wealth in this country and certain systems in this country, right? And then continue to maintain, uh, you know, what what is mainstream or what is the status quo here? So I, yeah, I, I, every everything that you just said, uh, I, I just have so much love for Sam. Um, is there anyone else that would like to share part of their reflections on? I would just like to add on to that actually and just unpack that a little bit more. Um, so some of the, okay, back, um, some of the work that I do also is with a lot of newcomer Canadians. So more so folks coming from, uh, the Arab world and South, uh, Asia, uh, but oftentimes it's just newcomers from anywhere. And we run a program myself and this other indigenous woman in the past, uh, where we teach newcomers, uh, about those kind of indigenous histories. Um, and about like the indigenous people uh, that were here prior to colonization. So us and then the other communities that we shared the land with. Um, because oftentimes there is very much this belief um, that draping yourself in the Canadian flag is the way to be safe. Uh, and I think that's a very reasonable belief to have because as we know, the rhetoric that is pushed onto a lot of newcomers is that if you're not patriotic of Canada, if you don't love the Canadian state, then you're undeserving of being here. And the rhetoric that we feed newcomers in general is the idea that they're undeserving of being here because white Canadians were here first and deserve these opportunities. Um, and this also goes along in general for me as an Indigenous Muslim um, around some of the Islamophobia work that we do and kind of tying those ties together of the way Muslim folks in Canada, for example, are also expected to coat themselves in this patriotism uh, or they're terrorists or they're just here to support their home countries and they're ungrateful of being here. Uh, so I think first and foremost, kind of unpacking some of that intergenerational beliefs that we see uh, with a lot of uh, newcomer folks 
uh, starts with that fundamental basis of education. Those people aren't trying to be harmful, right? It's just the lack of education. And when Canadians that have grown up here their entire life in our schooling system aren't even aware of the atrocities that Indigenous communities have faced or Indigenous histories in general, how are we expecting that from newcomers? And how is that completely uh, unfair to, uh, to expect when our own like European, Anglo-Saxon, Canadians that have been here forever don't know that same history, right? Um, yeah, and I definitely see that a lot. And I understand the, the idea of wanting to kind of drape yourself in that nationalism. And I think it's only a fair response. Um, just in the interest of time, I think I'm just going to move on a little bit from the sharing. You folks can definitely ruminate on what you were thinking, uh, but I don't want to steal up too much of the rest of your evening. Uh, so if you look at the article that's on the screen here, uh, it's about Hayden King and regretting his writing of Ryerson University's land acknowledgement. So for folks who didn't know, Hayden King is an amazing uh, Anishinaabe writer and a community organizer and activist uh, who pre previously worked at Ryerson University uh, and he wrote the land acknowledgement for Ryerson, which was a little bit of that one that I gave you at the beginning. Uh, but they also have this really weird line about like welcoming Europeans and it's a little bit strange. But that's beside the point. Uh, and the article that you can see links, feel free to read it when you have some time. Uh, just, um, oh, we have uh, some new friends. Hey, uh, I just want to let you know, um, suicide, you should definitely commit it. Depression is just when you're sad. Fuck niggers, kill Jews. Um, Hail Hitler, Hail Hitler, alt-right, alt-right, alt-right. I'm just going to keep going. So uh, in this article, it kind of goes on to acknowledge that Hayden King uh, regrets writing that land acknowledgement because he talks a little bit about the ways in which settlers, primarily white settlers, uh, use land acknowledgements as kind of like a tick on the box. Uh, like, okay, we did our work, reconciliation is done. Uh, the Indigenous people can be happy now because we did kind of that bare minimum. And I think it's really important to remember just that, that those land acknowledgements first and foremost are those bare minimums. Um, there's a lot of things in my opinion that go into whether or not a land acknowledgement is good or bad. And I don't wanna say that my opinion obviously can't and doesn't speak for all indigenous people, um, but these are just some of the things that me and my community talk about personally. Um, so really recognizing that those land acknowledgements are those first steps. Uh, but I, if I had a dollar for every time I went to a space and a land acknowledgement was done uh, and the name of a nation was said wrong, for example, uh, I would be rich. <laughs> I would have that generational wealth that uh, we were talking about earlier. Uh, specifically coming from uh, being Mohawk, which I'm sure you folks have heard Haudenosaunee before. That's just a fancy word for Mohawk uh, and some of the other Six Nations uh, communities. Um, is always, always, always said wrong. Uh, and for me, that's always way more disrespectful um, than a land acknowledgement not being done, period. Uh, I think some of my favorite pronunciations of Haudenosaunee so far have been Haudenosaunee. That one was really fun for me. I felt really seen. Um, I did it. I'm kidding. But um, just some of those different pronunciations, because it feels so fundamentally disrespectful. Um, because to me, that proves that one, you're only doing that land acknowledgement to check off that box. You don't know whose land it is. You don't know whose land you're on and you don't care. Uh, two, it says that you can't even be bothered to do a two minute Google search when you've been reaping the benefits of being on this land for however long your family's been here. Um, so it says a lot of those things. So for me, that's something that always really ticks me off. 
so something that you can do before you do a land acknowledgement is always try to, if you can, do that research on how to say the name of the nation properly first. Um, there's actually a lot of really amazing resources on YouTube that walks you through different pronunciations of Indigenous words. Uh, so I highly recommend checking that out. Uh, but for the record, I will spell it out phonetically in the chat. Haudenosaunee is pronounced. Haudenosaunee, like a knee, or Haudenosaunee. Both of those are right. You can't go wrong, but that's how you would say that. Um, Anishinaabe, you folks have probably heard before. That one's pretty straightforward and talked a lot about in Toronto and just in, when we hear about Indigenous communities, that's usually the community that we hear about the most. Uh, but those are just some important things to keep in mind. Um, something that I really like when I hear Lucinda's land acknowledgements, for example, is that idea of tying it back to both your identity and the space that you're in. Uh, so for me, for example, if I was doing your main land acknowledgement for the day, and we're, I know that we are talking about mental health, I would do the standard land acknowledgement that I gave you, and then I would go in to say, as we know, Indigenous people in Canada are fundamentally impacted at much higher rates around suicidality, depression, and mental health uh, than settler youth are. Uh, if we look at in the North, for example, uh, suicide rates are at a rate of almost 80% more than the national average. Um, and there, we have seen multiple suicide crises on reserve. Uh, make no mistake that that is because of generational trauma and lack of resources. Uh, so that's how I would add to that land acknowledgement to kind of make it way more contextual to the day that you're doing. Because uh, for me, when someone, again, goes up in front of a room, reads a land acknowledgement off like this, and I can't see their face, uh, and just goes on to talk and say, Toronto is in the dish, with what, and then wraps it up, that to me very much says that, again, you're just checking that box for the sake of checking that box. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have served on boards, for example, um, or started classes off, or like every board meeting, maybe you're starting off with a land acknowledgement. Uh, every class, maybe you're starting off with the land acknowledgement. That's great, and I definitely encourage you to continue doing that. Um, but if it becomes routine to the point that people aren't listening, adding those personal anecdotes are something that is going to keep people interested and going to keep people engaged. Uh, that being said, I definitely recommend learning a land acknowledgement off by heart. Um, it's actually not that tricky and you shouldn't need a paper. You just have to remember the dish with one spoon, which will hopefully be easier now that you know what it means um, and the names of those nations. And after that, you can kind of improvise anything else. Uh, so those are just really important things uh, to remember. Uh, nativeland.ca is also an amazing resource if you happen to be on someone's territory and don't necessarily know whose territory you're on. Um, that can also be really important. Uh, Lucinda, did you have anything to add? I think one concrete T campus based example that I like to think of as well, just for anyone here who the organization, um, which this might be applicable or applicable. Um, sorry, also, I think I may, someone's mic may be picking me up. If anyone, anyway, I digress. Um, I, I was told by uh, an Indigenous student uh, advocate, I think about a year ago, that at the re recommendation of Indigenous students at U of T uh, and Indigenous law students, uh, the Society for Law Students, SLS, uh, kind of their divisional student government, uh, began, began this rotational system, right? You know, share the wealth, share the responsibility of, let's say, researching and creating your own uh, acknowledgements and, and let everyone create this personal attachment and, and have this personal moment of reflection. Uh, so 
basically every meeting for the SLS is chaired by a different person and every person, every chair has to create their own acknowledgement. And that's kind of one other way that you can sort of imagine sharing that in, in your own student groups uh, that I personally really like. Um, I, I guess otherwise too, just this kind of thought of like, if you don't know what to do because you're not working uh, consistently with indigenous folks, a, probably a sign that you should be doing some coalition building. You should probably be doing some outreach and showing up to indigenous students' work and actions as well as broader indigenous organizations' um, actions and, and supporting them more maybe, right? Uh, and if you aren't working with anyone and or indigenous students are kind of at capacity locally, like in your local circles, but you still kind of want to be thinking about how to, let's say, revamp your land acknowledgement uh, processes or protocols. Um, there are still ways to like, again, using the resources that Olson touched on, um, to take the initiative to, to search things up, to try to implement things from other indigenous leaders. Um, sorry, I'm just seeing that our next one of our panelists is, is joining us. Um, and, uh, you know, do, do your best to take initiative and also support and, and reach out when you can. Um, but there is obviously a concern that sometimes in leftist spaces, we are not aware of our own privileges or how we come across to folks that we've never worked with before. And yeah, sometimes uh, you may end up like messing up and, and asking for labor that wasn't appropriate to ask for or something as you're getting training wheels on if you're like a newer student advocate or activist, right? But it is more fundamentally problematic when people let that anxiety or fear stop them from genuinely engaging in anti-racist or anti-colonial work. And I think I, I personally just see that a lot in spaces where indigenous students, um, you know, aren't, aren't there and or don't have access. So uh, that would sort of be my broad takeaway about uh, land acknowledgement and beyond. Yeah, I think I have three things just to add after that. And I'm really happy you brought that up, Lucinda, because that was one of the things I was going to talk about. Um, is that, and I'm not sure if this is just a Toronto organizing issue or if it's an organizing issue in general, uh, but Toronto organizers and folks in Toronto have a deep, deep, deep uncomfort about talking to Indigenous people, like a very deep-rooted uncomfort. And I understand the anxiety that would come along with messing up or the fear that would come along with messing up and the stress that would come along with messing up. Uh, but I promise you not talking to indigenous people is not the solution. Um, the way I see indigeneity treated in Toronto organizing circles opposed to other identities is always very strange because there's this innate fear of approaching indigenous organizers, asking indigenous organizers to speak about things. So I'd highly encourage folks to maybe look into why that is. Um, and think about where that discomfort comes from and really, really try to work on unpacking that discomfort. Um, okay, that was one thing. The next thing was uh, when we're talking about land acknowledgements and things like that, I'm not sure when this kind of became the norm or when people thought this was an okay thing to do, but do not ask Indigenous people to give your land acknowledgements if you're like a student group or like something. It's really weird. It's not my land to acknowledge. Um, it's your, it's the land that you're occupying to acknowledge. I know whose land it is. I, I don't need, I, I don't need to do that. Uh, so that's just something to check in on and remember uh, to do, and there was one third thing, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, okay, talked about weird fear around Indigenous people. We talked about not getting Indigenous people to do land acknowledgements. I can't remember right now, but that is okay. I'm sure it'll come back to me. 
Um, but yeah, I just wanted to thank you folks for having me again. I apologize if I was a little frazzled after our surprise visitors. I think I got a little bit shook up, so I am not on my A game, but I hope uh, you folks still are walking away with uh, something. Likewise, likewise. Also, Olson in general is just an amazing person for facilitating things like this, for talking about uh, and working on issues related to Indigenous sovereignty as they manifest on the post-secondary level and beyond. So if you ever want to connect, I mean, hey, example number one of wonderful people uh, that maybe you can follow up with later. Thank you so much. Please ask for my opinion. Uh, should I always? No, but I love giving my opinion. So if you ever want it, I am here. I can't promise that it'll be useful, but thank you so much for hearing me out and thank you to all the folks in the chat. Uh, I hope the rest of your day goes well and your interruption is minimal. Um, and I'm sure I will work with you folks again in the future. Awesome. Thank you. See you folks. Very, very cool. Um, all right, so Charlotte, I guess that's, that's your cue if you feel comfortable um, changing up the slides a little bit here. Uh, yeah, so I guess moving on from the land re-acknowledgement here, hopefully folks uh, who didn't speak and share still had uh, a bit of reflection time that was meaningful for you, reflections on your personal relationship to indigeneity, indigenous sovereignty, and, and even as that manifests on the student level, right? Uh, so moving forward, we have two moderators just for today's panel discussion and our opening session for Schools of Thought, this very summit that you're attending. Um, really, really wonderful speakers here, uh, and, and just two randos, just kidding, um, two organizers of this event, myself and Constanza, um, will be jumping in, uh, for light moderation. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce Constanza, uh, Farias, uh, a community organizer, speaker, artist, and anti-psychiatry activist, uh, her own experiences navigating, uh, a disability as a young person shaped her path in becoming a disability justice activist with a focus on mental health and education. She is involved with the University of Toronto Mental Health Policy Council uh, as an organizer and consultant. She is also serving on the board of the Disability Justice Network of Ontario, YAC, uh, volunteers as a crisis responder at Kids Help Phone, and is an advisor to the curriculum development teams at Peace, uh, Peace It Out Redwood Shelter. Constanza strongly believes in an intersectional approach when analyzing and solving inequities present in our society and intends to help create a dialogue and a path forward. Thank you, Lucinda. That was a, an amazing introduction. Um, I wonder what, what Big Brain wrote it. Okay, my camera is crazy, like slow. I feel like it's slowing down my audio, so I'm gonna turn it off. Um, okay, listen, sorry. Can you tell me what's next? Because I can't open the next document. My computer's not. Okay, so, so I'm going to introduce Lucinda right now. Um, but I'm having a bit of a hard time opening the document. Um, would, would it be easier perhaps for Maya or Charlotte to give it a quick, or uh, this feels weird, I can just, I, 
whatever's easiest. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, Lucinda, she's a recent graduate from the University of Toronto, double majored in health studies and equity studies. While her love for love of community led her to pursue many student leadership roles. These include she's a founding member and organizer with the students for Reproductive Justice Toronto and the University of Toronto Mental Health Policy Council, two-term president of the Equity Studies Student Union, vice president external with the University of Toronto Students Union, and vice president student operations of the Victoria University Students Administrative Council, and finally, three-time chair of the UFT Acapella Coalition. Um, and she served while co-directing a UFT-wide and uh, anonymous hyena <laughs> and a UFT law faculty specific acapella group. Um, Lucinda believes that all of these collectives have had a profound impact on her understanding of student mental health as well as her own well-being. She's excited to continue learning and organizing with students while beginning her master's in global mental health at the U of Edinburgh this fall. So amazing stuff, Lucinda. <laughs> wow. Um, and we could not have a fulsome discussion tonight without uh, the generous help of our external collaborators and panelists here. Uh, so I guess to begin, we're going to start with Kelly Davis and then move through uh, towards our needs representatives who each have their own uh, astoundingly diverse organizational affiliations and, and experience with other non-needs projects as well. Um, so Kelly Davis, uh, our first presenter, external presenter here is the Director of Peer Advocacy Supports and Services at Mental Health America, where she works to promote the expansion of peer support throughout healthcare. Uh, she also leads MHA's Young Adult Leadership Initiatives that are focused on highlighting and expanding uh, young adult-led programs that fill gaps in traditional mental health services and supports. Uh, in 2019, Kelly was awarded the Disruptive Innovator Award by the National Association of Peer Supporters, INAPS, an award given to a young person making positive change in mental health through positive disruption. Uh, she is a certified yoga teacher and holds a certificate in applied positive psychology from the Flourishing Center. She is currently pursuing her master's degree in nonprofit leadership at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Kelly, uh, for joining us. And, and uh, however you'd like to proceed, if you'd like to take over the presentations or if you'd like us to just kind of run the slides alongside you that we have with us. Your choice. Yeah, so first of all, hi. Um, I'm grateful to be here. Hi, I'm so excited. I get to see you. We've been on the phone so much. Um, I would, for the um, presentation, I, so I had to log in from my phone. Um, so if, if you don't mind uh, moving the slides, I don't know that it's like literally possible for me to do that. <laughs> I don't know if it's possible for me to do it from my phone. Um, so is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Awesome, awesome. So, okay, so I'll get started. So I'm Kelly Davis. Um, you heard all random things about what I do and what I've done, um, but I'm really excited to talk to you about campus mental health transformation. So I work for a, um, an organization in the U.S. called Mental Health America. Um, we were founded in 1909 and um, are the you know, nation's oldest mental health advocacy group. Um, our founding, we were founded by a man named Clifford Beers, who was a person with lived experience, um, would now be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and had been in and out of the state hospitals at the time and was really moved to address um, the atrocities and horrors that were happening and started the, um, started the modern day mental health movement in the US. Um, so that's really part of our history and also guides our work 
um, our work today. So that's a little bit of context. We have over 200 affiliates around the country. We have a bunch of different programs, but that's, that's who we are in the foundation. And it's, it's also the foundation of the work that I'm going to be talking about. Um, so next slide, please. Okay, so just as an overview, um, so we'll be talking about some of the leading changes in college student mental health, um, model student-led mental health and peer support communities on college campuses, and then some advice on replicating student-led mental health and peer support programs on campus. Um, and I will say, um, this, no, that's great. Um, so I'll say that too, um, I was really excited to hear um, in someone else's intro that they're, you know, they're aligned with the anti-psychiatry movement. I, as a person with lived experience, um, feel like I also faced a lot of harm and the traditional mental health services and the traditional mental health system in many ways did more damage than good for me um, and in my life. So was really excited to hear somebody with, with that experience. And just to say that that, um, the those ideas and the perspective of lived experience really guides um, guide this work. Uh, next slide. Um, so you know none of this will be <laughs> will be new to anyone here, but I think th again this this work that I do at MHA really started a based on my experience as a college student doing mental health advocacy, and pretty much all I heard from kind of leaders was you know all we need is more awareness campaigns and individual therapy. And no one's talking about disability accommodations and there's nothing else we can do. Otherwise, don't really talk about it. Um, and I think, I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know, mental health is more than just an individual person. And I think a lot of times mental health leadership on college campuses um, is really decontextualizing people. So there's so much pressure that college students are facing, um, whether that's financial pre pressure, lack of access to food, lack of housing, um, you know, racism on campus, transphobia, like the impact of climate change, I think right now, especially because of all everything that's happening in the world and how profound and intense it is, just like pervasive despair that is not captured in a clinical tool, right? So there's, there's much more than just increasing access to traditional services in college mental health. And I think um, this work that I've done at MHA was really a response to just frustration of having people clap for my story and not being willing to do anything different to address the, the concerns that shaped my story. Um, so all of this to say that mental health advocacy really needs to intersect with other types of advocacy because, um, you know, I, one of the uh, common thing I think is, is the mental health system is a it's oppressive, but also serves to adjust people to their own oppression if it doesn't take into account all of the other things that need to change for people to be well. Um, and, you know, this work is very much aligned with I'll just touch on um, anti-psychiatry, but the consumer survivor and ex-patient movement um, that happened around the world. But um, in the U.S. context specifically, you know, during deinstitutionalization in the 1960s, when they were closing down a lot of the large state hospitals, um, people who had, ex who had experienced extreme trauma and distress at the hands of the services that they were told that they should access, um, came together and said, you know, we can support one another, but we can build different things because we know what we need. And there's a lot that I'm not going to, um, that I'm not going to cover in here, like policy change on campus, 
Um, you know, there, there's been some really landmark things happening in the U.S. around uh, leave of absence policy, mandatory withdrawals, and I think those are all very important. The work that I've done has really been focused on programmatic change and what are some of the ideas that students themselves have come up with and have led that fill gaps in this broken narrative that traditional mental health services are really all we, all we need and all we can invest in. Um, so next slide, please. Um, so some of the major challenges in addressing campus mental health, one, obviously money, um, schools not being willing to invest more than they're already investing. The second major concern um, that I hear from students, you know, all, all over, but this is certainly really big in the US, is liability. So anytime a student wants to start a peer support program or wants to start, you know, some, some new and exciting way to support their peers, uh, schools have such an intense fear of something going wrong. Um, that they block a lot of act block a lot of activities by saying, "Oh, this is a this is a liability thing. You're not qualified to do this." Blah blah blah. Um, and then often it's not even true. It's just a way to punt. So I think that's something that a lot of um, a lot of student advocates come across. As I mentioned, a lot of the traditional mental health advocacy and leadership, because there's so much. Um, emphasis on, on traditional mental health literacy programs being what people need, that I think it really trains people to think that the only thing that they can ask for and the only thing we're doing are expanding individualized one-on-one -on -one resources. Um, the other component that I'm sure everybody here also experiences is that student perspectives are not val valued. So whether that's being you know, at, at the center of different forms of, of marginalization, particularly for students with, you know, in this context, psychiatric disabilities, um, but really not listened to and kind of just pushed out or um, told, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't have this degree or you don't have this, so you can't really comment on these issues. Um, this, you know, so that's also a barrier that you know, this, this idea that people with fancy degrees and positions within the university have more wisdom and knowledge that um, really outweighs anything that students are saying about what they want or what they need. Um, and then stigma, obviously, uh, fear about talking about mental health um, among students, um, especially uh, fear around identifying as a student with a disability is a really big thing that has come up a lot in the work that I've done. And then the final piece is lack of clear pathways for change. I think I'm hearing this more and more is that I want to do something, but I have no idea what to do. Um, so that can be a really big barrier that keeps out a lot of people who would otherwise be really good allies in building and building something new. Um, next slide. So I think what we're seeing a lot and what I'm seeing a lot is, you know, this rise in youth and young adult activism and we're seeing it, you know, we've been seeing it in the protests across the world, um, in the US, especially with the um, death of George Floyd, but climate change, all of these things, there's a really um, awesome, strong undercurrent of youth and young adult organizing and it's also happening in mental health. Um, and I would, I would uh, caution that, you know, the folks who are in positions of power, um, even, even with the consideration that traditional mental health services haven't considered the wants of people who are receiving them, the world is so incredibly different than it's ever been before that it's kind of wild to assume that the old ways of doing things make sense, um, even if they worked before, right? So we need, 
we need a new way of doing things. The people who've spent 20, 30, 40 years committed to kind of um, these, these traditional power dynamics in mental health oftentimes aren't going to be at the forefront of dismantling them and building something else. Um, next slide. Um, so at MHA, um, the program that I created is called the Collegiate Mental Health Innovation Council um, and was really dedicated to addressing this idea that um, school, like, it, it was really hard to say, you know, that I want to do something and I have no idea what to do. Um, so I wanted to really identify students who were already doing things that were working on their campuses. And it's really about finding students from across the U.S., um, who've created really cool programs. So some of their focuses were technology, peer support, disability supports, um, more traditional well-being education, athletics, students of color, and LGBTQ plus students. Um, on one hand, to combat this idea that like, oh, you know, that's not something from an administrative perspective, like, oh, that's not something that can be done or that people can do. And you can say, well, actually, like, here's five schools where they're doing it and it works and they get money from the school. Um, or on the other hand, you know, I remember being in school and being like, I want to create something and I have no idea what to do. And there's so much time that goes in between wanting to do something and figuring out and like failing and doing it and messing up and, and readjusting and all of that, that it also serves as a guide to youth, youth and young adult perspectives and you know, any NEH college student perspective on campus and what can be improved, but also as a guide for other student advocates who want to build new things. Um, and I'm going to go through some of the findings of the reports and, um, and quickly go through some of, the, some of the different options and programs that um, students have come up with. So next slide. Um, so you, know, you can find all of these on, on MHA's website. Um, and I know that y'all will have access to the slides, so you'll be able to um, actually read this. But our first report um, was really focused on the idea of beyond awareness, that telling young people that mental health is, that mental, that they're having a hard time with their mental health and they should ask for help, and they're being referred to services that either don't exist or are ineffective, right? So we need to go kind of beyond that to really build out new resources. Um, and part of the focus of that report was about utilizing technology um, as a way to connect with traditional professionals, support one another, um, and to share information. Um, this idea that peer support, which is research evidence-based, something that's really effective, particularly for young people, um, is not a dangerous, scary thing that schools should be afraid of. But there's actually, it's not only what people want, but there's really, there's proven models that are working on other campuses. Um, and then this, this final thing um, is the disability supports. One of the things that has come up a lot um, is, you know, the, the burdensome process of receiving disability accommodations, but even the fact that many students who are struggling with their mental health um, don't know that they can get, mental, they can get accommodations at school or it, it kind of goes two ways on one way. It's I don't want to identify as somebody who has a disability because I don't have representation and I, I, I have a lot of lack of understanding about what that means and what that community looks like. Or on the other hand, I'm not doing bad enough to get disability accommodations. So I think what's really cool about the reports that we've put out is that you know in traditional mental health reports and, and research, a lot of times they're talking about the university perspective um, but these are these reports fill gaps in like what you're not the, the nuance that is actually experienced by the students themselves. Um, so the, the disability technology and peer support um, were kind of the focus of the first 
the first report. So you can read that um, the, to fill in. And I think, because what's really useful for, for folks and for students is like, you can, they can build all the they can build all the things that they want, but why don't people use them and why don't why don't they work? Um, and that's kind of what the the crux or the the spotlights of the report are focused on. Um, next slide. Um, and then the second uh, the second report was focused on making space for mental health on campus. Um, so these are just kind of the major highlights. So one um, is that campus space. Uh, mental health shouldn't be focused on students who want to join a mental health club. Um, I think, again, that's kind of a major, it's an important space for people to work, but it's a major flaw in how mental health advocacy on campus is being, I guess, like operationalized or invested in because not everybody wants to join a mental health club. Um, so it's important to have opportunities to embed mental health resources within other groups on campus. So, you know, some of the examples um, for that is a program called Own Your Roar out of Towson University, where they do, they work within the athletics department to train student athletes to support one another. They train them in positive mental health and peer support um, so that they don't have to go to a counseling center. Or they don't have to join a mental health club because they're right there busy and like nobody should have a monopoly on mental health and mental health services. So um, there's lots of examples about how you can put mental health in other things instead of making people making students come to you for mental health because students are for a lot of reasons, including economic reasons, incredibly overwhelmed and busy. Um, you know, the second point I touched on before was just a further exploration of peer support programs on campus um, that are really growing. And I think students are more and more able to convince their administrators or just do it themselves um, in ways that administrators are finding out are not threatening or dangerous. Um, the third point is about making support accessible 24 seven. Um, so that's phone, that's um, across campus. So, you know, uh, having, not just having a counseling center in one spot on campus, but having counselors embedded in other like um, buildings for like a sci the science building or like the math building, having offices there. So students, it can be embedded into students' lives as opposed to making them build their lives around mental health services. One of the other things that I think was really cool that um, is in the report was a student at William & Mary in the US. Um, they had like outdated kitchenettes in their dorms and they actually turned them into wellness spaces. So they have like drop-in spaces in the dorm room that has like essential oils, that has blackout, blackout curtains and different resources for folks who if they're in distress can like literally go to the space in their dorm to um, like decompress and, and relax. Um, and then the final piece that I think is also really cool, and I think I saw um, some things about the, the disability stuff in the comments, um, is disability cultural centers. So this is also, um, I'm, I'm sure y'all are familiar, disability cultural centers are really spaces where folks not just can get like accommodations or resources, but where students come together and celebrate disability identity um, and can connect with one another and say, you know, it's not just I should be afraid of getting accommodations, but I'm actually part of a really cool community that has a lot of richness and history and is a movement of awesome people with all different experiences. Uh, traditionally, these have not focused on psychiatric disabilities, um, but I think that's a growing conversation. Um, and it's a big one that's been happening at Brown University in particular. Next slide. Um, so I'm going to talk, you know, go over some examples of the programs that um, 
the students that I've worked with um, have led. And you know, a lot of a lot of folks when they think of peer peer support, um, you know, they they often are thinking of formal peer support programs. But there's a lot of ways to um, embed peer support in other in other ways without making it like a support group or um, a traditional mental health service. So I'm going to go over some technology-based examples, some formal peer support programs, um, some education-based groups, and some community-focused um, organizations, and then I will wrap up with some of the kind of key findings of the student advocates that I worked with. Um, so next slide. Um, and you can find all of these um, on our website. I'm going to include, okay, great. Awesome. I do have time. <laughs> um, and you know, my contact information is here as well, um, but you can find all of these. So here's some of the examples of the, um, the student developed apps that I've worked with. So the Anemone app, um, is a crisis planning app. So similar to like a psychiatric advanced directive, students can go in um, and do crisis planning for their mental health and indicate people they want to support them. Um, the second project is called the Buddy Project. They're, they're pretty big. Oh, awesome. I love Buddy Project. Gabby Frost um, is the founder of the Buddy Project and the Buddy Project was actually developed uh, based on Twitter. So um, Gabby was like a One Direction fangirl and saw that a lot of folks were um, tweeting about being in distress. And she developed this program. She developed like a Google Doc um, where she would ask people their interests and match people based on their shared interests in fandoms and music just for somebody who they can talk to. Um, and now it's grown into a very big, uh, very big program. Um, and they have fancy algorithm that will help ma match you with a buddy. But I know folks end up meeting in person. Um, it's, been, it's been a really cool um, program that a lot of people have used. I think the, the last time I had numbers was like over 250,000 people or so. Um, the third example is called Lean On Me. Um, Lean On Me is a um, text-based peer, kind of anytime peer support app. So um, it started at MIT. And Lean On Me, um, basically they train student leaders um, to provide anonymous text-based text support at any time of the day. And um, they are on a number of campuses as well. So, you know, th that's an opportunity for you to talk to anonymously another student on your campus um, anytime you need support, whether that's um, when you're in, you know, if you're having a panic attack or if you're just really stressed or you're fighting with your roommate. Um, and then the final one um, that I think is also really cool is called Joel Bruin. It is a chatbot. Um, a student named Kat Wang at the, UC, at the University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA. Um, the really interesting thing about UCLA, if you, um, you know, I don't know, how, I don't know how, how widely known this is. So they have something called the Depression Ground, Ground Challenge. Um, they are really heavily, at least financially, investing in mental health resources to the point where they have just so many mental health clubs for students to join. Um, and so a lot of mental health resources, but in making all of those mental health resources, um, just as under-resourced schools are, it's really hard to navigate and to like figure out what would be useful for you, where you can go. Um, so Kat developed Joel Broom, which is a chatbot, and it guides students to like through questions to ask them like what resources on campus will be useful to you um, what like mental health support clubs would be helpful to you and then it also provides um, it provides 
wellness tips, stress reduction tips, like those kinds of things. Um, next slide. Um, so, and these are formal peer support programs, um, and they all kind of have a bit of a bit of different takes. So, the support network um, is a program that was founded at the University of Michigan. It's called Wolverine Support Network, and they um, train student leaders to provide a formal, their model is they train student leaders to facilitate weekly peer support groups and then have bi-weekly sober hangouts for members, but then also for non-members where folks go bowling, do yoga, all different kinds of stuff. Um, and they are really um, wellness focused. So they don't use mental illness. They don't use any like pathology or disability focused language, uh, but are really trying to hold space for um, anybody who feels like they need a little extra support or someone to talk to, they're on, uh, they're on an increasing number of college campuses in the U.S., but I think something that's especially interesting about them um, is, and I, I was on their board of directors, so disclosure there, um, but they actually, before they started expanding to other campuses, they actually let students go through an entire college experience before they, they um, expanded the model anywhere else. So they actually have data for, for what happens to students who go through membership in the support network from freshman to senior year, which I think is really cool. Um, the second formal peer support program is Project Let's. This is like one of my favorite <laughs> organizations in the world. Um, they're very, they're disability justice oriented. So in their approach, um, whereas the support network is really wellness and like general mental health support, um, Project Let's is really disability justice focused. And what they did, um, they started at Brown University and what they did um, in Rhode Island is they took the state peer support certification and formed it. Oh, yay, awesome. Um, they took the state peer support certification and turned it, uh, evolved it a little bit um, and turned it into their training. Um, and they, as opposed to the like one uh, group-based peer support of the support network, they have peer mental health advocates. So they're meeting with students one-on-one -on -one, um, and providing them individual peer support, but also helping them with navigating resources and doing advocacy and those kinds of things. They also have like the peer support groups and drop-in hours. Um, and they do also provide peer support through their website, but their, their core model is distinct because they're trained, they're framed around disability justice. So they use words like neurodivergent, mentally ill, all those things, um, and are working oftentimes one-on-one -on -one with individuals. Um, and then the final piece is um, one of the students out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, led Live Free, which is a collegiate recovery community. So these are really growing in the U.S. Um, they're sometimes called collegiate recovery communities or collegiate recovery programs. Their like, big association is that you can see there, ARHE, um, the Association for Recovery in Higher Education. And basically, these um, programs or communities uh, have mostly will have an, um, a staff person who has specialization in um, education and oftentimes is the person in recovery um, who helps organize and facilitate um, support groups around like oftentimes 12 step, but harm reduction. Um, addiction-based groups, and then also has, um, they have community events, but they also have dedicated staff who are working one-on-one -on -one with students as well. 
Um, so that's that's something that's grown a lot in the U.S., um, particularly for students who, you know, um, is very hard. I'm sober. Uh, it's very hard to, in, in many places, it can be really hard to get sober on campus, particularly if that's really all of the like social support that you have access to or people who are using or drinking really heavily. Um, and uh, just, just as another aside too of, of some cool stuff is actually Rutgers University in New Jersey, um, they actually have sober dorms. So for students who are in recovery, they have housing specific for them too if they wanna live um, with other sober people. Uh, next slide. Um, so these are you know, education-based programs, I think, when people think of mental health groups, a lot of times this is what they, this is, this is generally what they have in mind. So, you know, the, on, on the right, you see the mental health ambassadors. Um, they were started at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, they do your kind of traditional mental health education and advocacy. So they'll go into classrooms, they'll go into different clubs um, and do, you know, yes, like mental health education around um, depression, anxiety, but also workshops on like boundaries and relationships, um, self-care, that kind of stuff. Um, and then on the left, one of the things that, that I think is like super cool um, started at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I think a lot of schools have really, because they, they it is valuable, right, to provide well-being resources. Um, and they're more comfortable with that. And I think that they can access more students in that way. Um, but one of the major problems with that is, again, that students are incredibly busy and many students uh, are working and have a lot, a lot more things to take care of than like attend well-being workshops on top of all the other things that they're dealing with. Um, particularly like if, if the physical campus isn't really accessible to them, if they don't live on campus. Um, so this is a two-credit well-being course. Um, so it was developed by a woman named Leah Goodman, who's an occupational therapist. And they go through the course of the semester and do kind of general well-being education, but a lot of it is framed around disability. So it's a safe, it's a space for students to kind of talk about ideas related to disability and identity, um, but also to plan and take care of and support their own mental health and connect with other people. And I think the key, um, the key thing here that I think is really important for universities to understand is that, and I, I know for myself, like if this is not for credit, this is not prioritized. Like I need to do my, I need to take care of my academic stuff. Then I have to do my extracurricular stuff, stuff. Then I have to connect with my friends. Like there's so much on my plate that telling me that you're offering, like maybe offering like a yoga or like dog petting session, like that's bottom of the list. Um, so the two credit well-being course also empowers students to really um, focus and like build it into their schedule because they're getting credit for doing it. So it's just part of their kind of course load as opposed to, as opposed to putting it all on the student. Um, next slide. Um, and then here are three examples of um, community focused organizations. So not just about saying, you know, here's our, here's our general mental health group. Like they go and they talk about things. Um, but really embedding in different communities or, or focusing on the mental health of specific communities. Um, so the first is the Black Mental Health Ambassadors um, out of Emory University in the US, and they focus specifically on issues on campus impacting Black students. Um, and through this work with the Counseling Center and some of the different leadership 
leadership groups and administrators on campus to advocate specifically for resources for black student mental health. Um, the second is Own Your Roar. I, I mentioned them earlier. They are focused on college athletics. Um, and they, in their model, they train student leaders, um, student, older student athletes. It actually started out as just kind of awareness campaigns. It started out as um, a student athlete, Olivia Lubarski. Um, she had a, an, a severe physical injury and then she had a severe episode of depression and was so horrified at how people respond, how differently people responded, responded to those things um, that she created first awareness, but then they developed a mentorship program where older student athletes um, are trained in mentorship and peer support in like positive, um, positive development, different like stress reduction skills, those kinds of things, and provide support to younger athletes. And they're also, they also have expanded to several additional um, campuses in the US using their model. Um, and then the last is Emory, also Emory University, Dark Arts. Um, and it is, it is the Harry Potter reference. Um, and they are a group of student artists um, who do different events. Um, so that includes like group meetings, but it also includes things like um, campus storytelling. And I think what's really cool about them, and I think you can kind of gauge this from their name, is that they're willing to, you know, a lot of, there's so much value in telling like positive mental health, well-being recovery stories and all that, um, because we don't want mental health to be you know, this like dark, shameful thing that people don't talk about. But a lot of times that comes at the expense of being honest about what it's like to really struggle with your mental health. Um, so the dark arts, um, they do a lot of storytelling about like what's really hard for people um, to create a space where people can talk about things that aren't always acceptable or like aren't ways that people um, are often, you know, uh, I remember in school, there was a lot of censorship around if we were hosting a mental health storytelling event, what you were allowed to say and how you were allowed to frame it. So their, their goal is really to be more, create some space to have more like authentic conversation, conversations about um, some of the really hard stuff that folks deal with. Um, next slide, please. So I'm going to go over um, some of the you know, main points of advice from the student leaders who I've worked with. But I would say, you know, in the two reports that I mentioned earlier, um, from the first two years of the program, they have the highlight, but all of the programs that I have talked about, um, there is a program guide that talks about how they developed it, um, what the program is, how it functions, and issues that students might run into if they're trying to replicate their programs and provides a means to contact them directly. So whether, um, whether there's a student who's interested in saying, you know, I want a chapter of a support network, or they're saying, I have an arts program, I wanna make a branch of it like dark arts focus, they're all really willing to um, support students from other campuses and make that information, you know, freely available in the ways that people wanna modify it. Um, so that in the, um, on the website, there's all of that information there. Uh, just as a plug, the report that I'm working on now that's going to come out in October is going to be focused um, specifically, it's going to share the resources from this year's group, uh, but it's going to focus specifically on online, ac online accommodations for students with psychiatric disabilities. Um, because everybody's been pushed online, I see, you know, there, there's a lot of conversations about um, how to mean how to try to address like overall student well-being but there's less discussion about what it means to offer students with psychiatric disabilities accommodations in virtual learning 
Um, so very excited about that. And that's going to come out um, in October. But just to close with some um, advice from student leaders. So the first, you know, is, is very obvious, uh, but utilize social media. Um, a lot of the students programs started from like random tweets. Um, so for example, uh, one of the programs out of Clemson University, um, uh, the, the founder of it, uh, Daniel Solomon, he was having a really hard time. He had had to take a leave of absence for depression and he was sitting in his dorm and he just like tweeted, mental health is really swept under the rug on this campus. Like I wanted to, I wish we could do something about it. And somebody who was on his floor like two years before was like me too. And they developed this whole, um, this whole community. Um, the second is tap into existing communities on campus. Um, so I think uh, one of the, uh, one of the major things that comes up a lot and it like doesn't feel as nice to talk about, but I hear a lot of students talk about like resume padding um, where folks want to be the leader of a community, but they don't necessarily want to build into or improve what already exists. And what happens then is that everybody's really like cut up, whereas there's no like kind of collective, um, collective voice. So I think I, you know, encourage people to not try to constantly create their own new specific thing, but really work. If you're creating something distinct, you should really still, um, still work, <laughs> work to see uh, what's available um, and, and how you can work with other students. Um, the second is build coalitions across communities and with staff. Um, as I mentioned, I think that it's a, it's a, you know, a big issue to only create mental health resources for mental health groups. Um, but really, if you're doing any kind of mental health work, making sure that you're having conversations with student athletes, with Greek life, with all of these other groups, because a lot of times, you know, you can come in and present to them and recruit new members and people to your organization, but you can even support leadership within those groups to kind of take what works about what you know and use it with their community, um, like Own Your Roar did. Um, the fourth is get feedback and read about the gaps and needs from other students. So this is just making sure that um, kind of in the, to the earlier point, that you're really aware of everything that exists, particularly on bigger campuses. Like I think a lot of times there are students who are kind of thinking about doing similar things and they're all, you know, trying to build their similar things alone. Um, but, you know, you wanna make sure that you're getting feedback from as many people as possible, both in terms of what they're interested in creating uh, but also in what they're seeing as gaps, because I think, you know, lived experience is valuable, but like having no one single lived experience is everything. So having feedback from as many students as possible, I think, only improves what what you're building and what you're able to do. Um, fifth is identify resources available for student led initiatives. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, money is um, money is something that universities bring up a lot when you try to get them to invest in mental health but they kind of throw money around for student groups. Um, so, or, or at least on a lot of campuses, like if you're a registered student group on campus, like you have access to some resources, um, some financial resources and at least physical space. Um, so really make sure that you're looking into all of the things that are available to your community that you might be able to access and utilize. Um, so that you don't have to, you know, that, that you're a better resource um, and you're not trying to build everything on your own or out of pocket, which I've also heard 
um, but you know, making sure that if you can be a registered student group and get money from your like student government, then you know you're you're taking those opportunities and you're, you're aware of them. Um, and then the final is look to other organizations for similar pathways. It's kind of the um, the crux of the work is trying to share as many pathways or models as possible for folks to say. I like this, I'm gonna replicate this, or I like this, but it would fit better if you did it like this on my campus. Um, so instead of uh, trying to figure everything out on your own, um, look to and even contact leaders from other campuses to see, to get their wisdom um, and to see how they've made things work um, on their communities. So, oh, yep, that's it, last slide. So thank you for letting me rant about college student mental health and the awesome work that the students who I've um, I've gotten the opportunity to work with over the past few years are doing. Um, that is my email. It's kdavis at mhanational.org. Um, and on our website, you can see um, mhanational.org slash cmic, who uh, is C-M-I-C-M-H-I-C. Um, you can find these reports. And we're also, uh, if anybody's interested, our recruiting, our applications closed today for the new um, young mental health leaders group that we're working with. But um, yeah, so all that information is available online. I appreciate y'all um, listening to me, but also this is such an important initiative and I'm grateful to be a part of it in some way. So thanks. Incredible. Thank you so much. Uh, that was amazing. Uh, if, if folks are all right with that and feeling like there's good steam going here, I guess, uh, maybe we'll motor on uh, to our next presentations. How do folks feel? Feel free to also take a break or a two minute break, five minute break at any time. There's no need to tell folks, obviously. Um, and stay tuned because we will have a Q&A just after these presentations. We'll pick your brains then, but um, yeah, maybe a quick break might be stretch break. How, how do folks feel about that for a couple of minutes? It's it's 646 now. Yeah. Do we want to just take a two minute break, folks? Okay. 